0: Today's Thursday, May 16th, 2019. And on today's episode of Campfire Chatter, I want to talk about the Battle of the Crater, July 30th, 1864, that happened outside of Petersburg, Virginia. The Battle of the Crater began when before July 30th, when Ambrose Burnside, Major General Ambrose Burnside, commander of the Union Ninth Corps, decided to blow up a portion of the Confederate lines directly facing him, outside of Petersburg. He had been approached by some of his officers, particularly in the 48th Pennsylvania, who thought that they could do it. So they, the men of the 48th Pennsylvania, created a mine shaft underneath Union lines and then into no man's land underneath Elliott's salient, which was the Confederate lines ahead of, up in front of them. They constructed the mine and blew up thousands of pounds of gunpowder early in the morning of July 30th. And once that happened, a massive pit was formed and had blown up the confederate works there guns artillery gear ammunition men just blown skyward and were a lot of them were buried alive the subsequent attack by three divisions of the ninth corps ended up in a disaster instead of going around the crater many of these union soldiers went into the crater and were basically like ducks in a barrel the final division of the Ninth Corps that attacked were United States Colored Troops, black soldiers, and once they reached the crater, it became a melee as Confederate reinforcements were pumped into there to that area to repel this Union attack, which they did with catastrophic losses to the Union side, and it was a decided Confederate victory and continued to boost their morale that had been constantly going up, up, up through the summer and spring. Now, a controversy arose because of the Murder and the killing of the black soldiers, many of whom had surrendered. And a lot of this was attributed to Mahone's division, William Mahone's division of Confederate soldiers. And some of that, I'm going to read a couple of accounts. I want to part of this episode, I'm talking to author and historian Charlie Knight, who is working on a biography of William Mahone. Um, He's also the author of Valley Thunder. Uh, battle of New Market, which came out a few years ago. And we discussed William Mahone's life and also a little bit about the Battle of the Crater as well. But I want to read some accounts from Confederate soldiers written describing the crater, some of the elements of it, of the battle that we can see. So it's those who try to, you know, want to pretend that Army Northern Virginia soldiers were guileless, innocent, you know, godlike, mythic, mythical creatures who did no wrong. The Battle of the Crater. uh, complicates that because of the element of race and the anger which these troops finally facing black soldiers for the first time exhibited towards them. It's a dirty part of the Civil War, and no war is clean. Not every soldier or human is clean and perfect, but I want to read some accounts from some of the men in the Army of Northern Virginia. Some of these men were not actually at the crater, but their sentiments still ring true. One is one of the Blackfords, famous Blackford family that sent sent men who were in officers, and this one was particularly. Charles Blackford, I think, I'll have to double check, who was the Judge Advocate General of the First Corps, Longstreet's Corps. Charles Minor Blackford, that's correct. And he wrote his wife the day after the crater battle that we certainly hold our old line and the enemy took nothing by his attack but a severe repulse. His strategy was a complete fizzle. So he's pretty confident that in just basically reporting what everyone seemed to know, what what Grant and Burnside knew, what Lee knew, what Confederate and Union soldiers knew, the attack on the crater was a complete failure. And Confederates reveled in that because it was such a massive operation when you consider the mining and the effort that took and the blowing up of the earthworks and the large Union assault. It was a complete failure. So other troops as well, you know, continued to write about it and boasted about the victory. One of them was a soldier in the 3rd Georgia named Alva Benjamin Spencer. And he wrote his wife August 6th, 1864, basically kind of complaining that they were attacked by black troops and how this was, and this is a common theme that historians write about. You see this in uh, historian George Rabel's book, uh, Damn Yankees, about demonization of Northerners by Southerners, and you see this in other works as well, how Southerners as well as Northerners demonized their opponent. And one way Southerners demonized, or Confederates demonized Yankees, was their, the Yankees' use of black troops. They con, Confederates considered that um, an abomination and almost a betrayal of, what they perceived were docile, you know, well-taken-care-of blacks in the South. But also it was an example to them, to white Confederates, of continued Yankee barbarism. Not only were they destroying property and killing their own men and other atrocities that they, were, they perceived to be atrocities, but they were also using black soldiers now. It was almost one of those, what is the limits of Yankee barbarism? So this soldier, Alva Benjamin Spencer in the 3rd Georgia, wrote his wife August 6th, Kind of in shock, writing, referring to the Battle of the Crater, Just think of our brave men being murdered by cruel, heartless Negroes. Isn't it enough to render the Yankees more despicable if possible than ever? Certainly a kind and just God will not permit such a people to rule over us. Oh, how, long, how I do long for this cruel war to end and such barbarities with it. So the fact that the Union were using black troops wasn't a surprise by July 1864. Lincoln had passed, had allowed black troops... To be regiments to be created in 1863, but this was the first time that elements of the Army of Northern Virginia were facing these men. So it was kind of a shock, but also it kind of stirred some negative feelings. So writing in his diary on July 30th, the day of the Battle of the Crater, was Daniel W. Albright, He was a member of the 12th Virginia Artillery Battalion, Heavy Artillery, and he described it as that a great many Negroes were forced forward, and they came yelling, no quarters, and our boys took them at their word. By night our works were as good as ever, and General Lee pronounces it the most brilliant affair of the war. There's other accounts from diaries and letters written immediately after the crater battle describing how many of these black soldiers were yelling no quarter towards the Confederates as they had attacked. And Confederates were yelling it right back and gave them no quarter. At the end of the day, whether you're black or white, the frenzy of combat and melee of combat, especially when you hate your enemy, the rules of war go out the the door in many cases. Unfortunately, that's that's warfare in general and throughout the history of war. war. But it's interesting that Albright writes that a great many Negroes were forced forward. That they were attacking against their will um, instead of they were actually vo- volunteer soldiers fighting in Union regiments, and they were very trained and very good soldiers, and they proved their bravery and their quality as fighting men on many battlefields in 1864 and helped end the war. But another, I want to read an account from a reminiscence given by George S. Bernard. He was a well-known Confederate veteran who compiled a lot of veteran accounts, and he was very active in post-war writing, and he wrote a pretty detailed reminiscence, and he was a member of the 12th Virginia Infantry, which was part of Mahone's Old brigade actually. A lot of these men were from the Petersburg area. and He described some pretty in pretty graphic detail a lot of different anecdotes about the crater battle and his experience there. And I'm just going to read a little bit this might run a little bit long but it's it's kind of illustrative of the combat and the mentality and emotion that was running through Confederate soldiers at the crater. So here's George S. Bernard from the 12th Virginia. Casting my eyes up the line towards the crater I saw Confederates beating and shooting at the Negro soldiers as the latter, terror-stricken, rushed away from them. I saw one Negro running down the trench towards the place where several of us stood and a Confederate soldier just in his rear drawing a bead on him as he ran. The Confederate fired at the poor creature, seemingly heedless of the fact that his bullet might have pierced his victim and struck some of the many Confederates immediately in its range. A minute later, I witnessed another deed which made my blood run cold. Just about the outer end of the ditch by which I had entered stood a Negro soldier, a non-commissioned officer, I noticed distinctly his chevrons, begging for his life of two Confederate soldiers who stood by him, one of them striking the poor wretch with a steel ramrod, the other holding a gun in his hand with which he seemed to be trying to get a shot at the Negro. The man with the gun fired it at the Negro, but it did not seem to seriously injure him, as he only clapped his hand to his hip, where he appeared to have been shot, and continued to beg for his life. The man with the ramrod continued to strike the Negro therewith, whilst the fellow with the gun deliberately reloaded it and placing its muzzle close against the stomach of the poor Negro, fired, at which the latter fell limp and lifeless at the feet of the two Confederates. It was a brutal, horrible act, and those of us who witnessed it from our position in the trench, a few feet away, could but exclaim, That is too bad, it is shocking, yet this, I have no doubt, from what I saw and afterwards heard, was but a sample of many other bloody tragedies during the first ten minutes of our after our men got into the trench, many of whom seemed infuriated at the idea of having to fight Negroes. Within these ten minutes, the whole floor of the trench was strewn with the dead bodies of Negroes in some places in such numbers that it was difficult to make one's way along the trench without stepping upon them. So Bernard's referring to trenches and ditches, not the crater itself, as many of these colored regiments, United States colored troops, had expanded out of the of the crater and into some of the surrounding trenches and were huddling there instead of moving forward. This was part of the problem with this assault. White and Union troops had kind of become stalemated. White and black troops had become stalemated in the trenches and the crater. And once the Confederates counterattacked, it was like shooting ducks in a barrel to a degree. And you can see by this account from Bernard, the horrible circumstances that many of these black soldiers had to go through and the horrible actions that many of the Confederate soldiers perpetrated upon them. Now, I'm not trying to demonize the Confederate soldiers for, what, for murdering these men. Obviously, that's kind of self-evident. You'd, you don't murder unarmed soldiers or civilians or anything like that in wartime. But we also have to take into account that this was a war, and by the time black troops were fighting white Confederate soldiers, it came as a shock, and in, as Bernard admitted, infuriated many of these men. Now, did every Confederate soldier around the crater murder unarmed black soldiers? We will never know. Likely not. Apparently, this was a—it was going on pretty widespread, but it wasn't literal. There was no orders from on high to murder these men. Once Mahone and Lee and others found out about it, they ordered a stop to it. But it's a dirty, ugly situation in the history of the war. It's an ugly incident in the history of the Army of Northern Virginia, and I'm not going to make judgments on either side. Obviously, it's wrong to kill unarmed men, unarmed soldiers as well, uh, civilians as well. So that kind of speaks for itself. But I talked to Charlie Knight, like I just mentioned, about this incident and kind of asked him about what what Mahone did about it and when the interview plays, you can get a little bit more background on Mahone as a general, as a railroad engineer, and why Charlie is writing a biography on Mahone. So without further ado, I talked with Charlie yesterday, May 15th, at Washington Lee University. He was getting ready to speak at Virginia Military Institute about his work on Billy Mahone, and this is the interview with Charlie. I hope you enjoy. Okay, I'm sitting here today with Charlie Knight, He is the author of Valley Thunder, the Battle of New Market, published by Savas Beatty. When did that come out?
1: 2010.
0: 2010, that's what I thought. And he's also currently working on a biography of Confederate General William Mahone. So I'm sitting here with Charlie today, and I'm going to ask him a few questions. Charlie, thanks for joining me today.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Glad to be here.
0: So, easy one, why William Mahone?
1: Well, you'd think it's an easy one, but it's really not. Mahone is one of these guys... He not just his Civil War career, but his entire career, he leaves a huge, huge footprint on the state of Virginia. He is one of the most influential guys in the latter half of 19th century Virginia in terms of politics and railroads. And there's been very little that's ever been written about Mahone. There was a guy in the 1930s who did his graduate uh, thesis on Mahone And he turned that into a book, and that's been the only thing that's been published about him Hmm. in book-length form. That's
0: interesting. So why do you think that is?
1: His handwriting, for starters, it's pretty close to illegible, even though there's Mahone certainly does not suffer from a lack of source material. There's 300 boxes of his stuff at Duke, smaller collections at UVA and Library of Virginia, as well as at VMI. So there's definitely no shortage of material but there's so much of it. He was a pack rat starting in 1865 onward. Oops. He kept everything that ever crossed his desk, but his own stuff borders on being illegible. And that's, that's a big part of it. And another, he made some very powerful enemies during and after the war, one of which was Jubal Early. And you, know, you don't want to make an enemy of Jubal Early if you wore a gray uniform. And Early really liked to, uh, I'm not sure what the word is, but uh, he didn't have nice things to say about Mahone. And the two of them actually were on the verge of fighting a duel at one point after the war. And he made other enemies as well Fitz Lee, Extra Billy Smith, Henry Heath, Cadmus Wilcox, a whole bunch of former Confederate generals. And he were all butting heads. So there was some bad information that was out there in the public about Mahone. And just by his personality, he was a very polarizing figure. You either loved him or you hated him, and most Confederate officers came down on the hating him side. So he's kind of pushed aside. And the last key thing, he became a Republican after the war, which when you have Jubal Early against you and you're a Republican in the South during Reconstruction, yeah, you're you're pretty much <laughs> done for.
0: Yeah. So you, you mentioned some of these generals, and a lot of them shared uh, commands with him in what became A.P. Hill's Third Corps. Do you think a lot of that had to do with People blaming Mahoon or Mahone blaming other people for poor command decisions that insert battle A, B, C or D, or is it was it more of a post war, um, kind of like the Longstreet syndrome where, you know, oh you're a turncoat Republican after the war, was it more of that? Or was it were you seeing some of that during the war, this kind of friction?
1: It's a combination of the two, really. Um Jubal Early and him seem to have gotten along fine during the war at Spotsylvania in 64, early is temporarily commanding Hill's corps. So he actually commands Mahone for a period of about a week or so. And then after the war, Mahone ghostwrites an article. It's actually credited to a Yankee officer named John Watts DePeister. but Mahone in essence wrote the thing and DePyster just put his name on it and published it. And he never directly attacked Early, but there were some errors of omission in there regarding Early that Early took offense to. And that's what, set, uh, that's what set the two of them at odds. And it just, it got worse from there on out because neither one of them refused to apologize to the other. And so that's where the conflict with Early comes in. Uh, he has falling out with some of the other officers over politics. Lee was completely over politics. But the other 3rd Corps commanders, Heath and Wilcox, was directly related to battle, was directly related to the war. Heath just plain long seems not to have liked him personality-wise, but Wilcox blamed him for the defeat at Gettysburg, stemming back to July 2nd. So there was bad blood between him and Wilcox, uh, dating to to 63. And when the armies get to Petersburg, they are operating in Mahone's backyard, and he really knew the terrain down there. He could pretty much draw a map of the the area around Petersburg with his eyes closed. But he was the junior division commander in Hill's Corps. So when Hill's Corps is launching all these offensives around Petersburg, Mahone is a lot of times planning it, or at least you know contributing to the battle plan, but he's not the senior officer on the field. That's another thing that where he and Wilcox butt heads after the war. Wilcox and Mahone start making claims that are infringing on each other's territory regarding fighting at Petersburg.
0: So are you referencing some of the attacks in August and September 1864 where there, the early strikes on the Weldon Railroad and lines like that were... Mahone's very influential, or, or do you even think because of that experience in the Petersburg area, is because that's kind of when we start to see Mahone as this excellent division commander or even really a brigade commander at any kind of, kind of level was during the Petersburg mm-hmm. fighting. And do you think it stems from that his comfortable uh, feelings with the terrain? And he just or he just took some initiative and realized because obviously AP Hill wasn't really doing much of anything still because of his. <laughs> whatever illness that he had. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think it's a, a a combination of initiative or more of just familiarity with the ground? That's why Mahone started to become more of a, a figure in the Army of Northern Virginia, um, kind of like the last... Historians typically say, you know, oh, Mahone is this lightning division commander that saved so many actions around Petersburg, but do you think it's more because of the familiarity with the ground or he just all of a sudden just has some responsibility and sees the opportunity like so many others did, like Gordon or mm-hmm. Grimes or people like that.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's, here again, it's a combination of the two, I think. Uh, definitely familiarity with the terrain. That, that had a lot to do with it. But also Mahone, I think he started to focus less on his railroad than off the of Petersburg Railroad, because he retained the presidency of that throughout most of the war. I think he started to push that aside and focus more on the war at that point, and it's really one of those big mysteries. I don't know what the answer is to that. Something clicked, but what it was, I don't know exactly what, but definitely the familiarity with the terrain was there, because right after Lee himself gets to Petersburg, he meets with Beauregard, and then a day or two later, he meets with Mahone because of his familiarity with all the terrain that they're fighting on right there east east of town. So that's definitely part of it, and most of the battles that happen throughout June, of course, the crater in July, but then August and September, like you said, it's all on ground that he has surveyed during his railroad work.
0: So you mentioned that he's still the president of the Norfolk and Petersburg Railroad during the war. Do you think maybe that took up too much of his attention? That's why he kind of never really, I wouldn't say asserted himself, but didn't assert himself during the war until he became a major general.
1: That was definitely part of it because he was still focusing... A lot on the railroad up until at least the spring of 1863. When Longstreet is doing his Suffolk campaign, Mahone is writing to him as president of the Norfolk and Petersburg complaining about what Longstreet is doing to the railroad down there in April of 63. And Lee at one point, I don't remember when it is, but Lee at one point actually recommends that Mahone be taken out of the field and made head of Confederate railroads. They were going to create a government railroad bureau and I think Lee realized that Mahone just, it, it wasn't working for him in the field. He found a way for a lot of these generals, Alexander Lawton, Richard Yule, guys who were talented but not necessarily at the field commands that they held. Lee put Lawton in as quartermaster general. He wanted Yule to take over Cavalry Bureau. And I think he realized that Mahone was one of the most gifted railroad guys out there and he could be replaced at that point in the war as a brigade commander. So. He eventually, I don't know when it is, but at some point he turns over the day to day operations of the railroad to the superintendent of transportation of the railroad, a guy by the name of Henry Fink, who is a big name in railroads in the post Civil War era. And Fink really took on a lot of the responsibility from about sometime mid sixty three onward. Like I say, I don't know when exactly that transfer of power took place, but sometime in there. And after Gettysburg, Mahone submitted his resignation. It was not accepted. I think he intended to go back and take over the railroad. I don't know that for sure, but that's, I think that's what he was doing. I think the, the criticism for Gettysburg pushed him over the edge at that point. So you brought
0: up earlier the second day at Gettysburg, and if, just for some context for the listeners, that we know about you know, James Longstreet's attack in Echelon up the Emmitsburg Road with McClaws and uh, Hood's divisions attacking Little Round Top, Peach Orchard, Wheatfield. And then Lee's plan was for that initial attack to continue into the 3rd Corps with Richard Anderson's division and right. um, so on and so forth. And then it broke down at that point. Uh, and you mentioned Wilcox's antagonism toward Mahone. There's a lot of criticism of Mahone because of Gettysburg because he basically, him and his, him, himself and Richard Anderson and a couple other brigadiers and the division, basically dropped the ball and pretty much didn't even participate in the mm-hmm. attack when Wright and Wilcox— had made some successes in their attacks on Cemetery Ridge, it, the ball just stopped. Like, Where in your evidence do you find a reason possibly for Mahone's doing that? Was it a passing of the buck because his division commander didn't order? What, was, what have you found in your research concerning Mahone at Gettysburg on the second day?
1: There was definitely a breakdown in communication that day, all the way from corps level all the way down to brigade level in Hill's corps. And like you said, Cadmus Wilcox and Ambrose Wright, their brigades go forward as ordered. They actually get a foothold up on Cemetery Ridge, and had they been supported, who knows what could have happened. There may not have been a third day if they'd been supported. Who knows? That's all conjecture. But as the attack continues to roll north, the Florida Brigade goes out, but it was so tiny it had very little effect, and then it gets to uh, Posey's Mississippi Brigade and finally Mahone. Posey had all of his guys out on the skirmish line, so he only could send one regiment forward, which was, in essence, nothing in the terms of that attack. And when it gets to Mahone, he refused to attack. He straight up told one of Anderson's couriers, I have orders from General Anderson to stay put. And the courier says, well, I've just come here from General Anderson. He's directing you to move forward. And Mahone absolutely refused to do it. He would not believe the courier, and at that point, Anderson should have gotten involved, come over himself and straighten it out, but there's no evidence that Anderson and Mahone ever spoke at that point. Hill, who knows what he was doing, he was probably sick at that point, but there's no evidence that he got involved either. So there was a breakdown there in both what was expected of Mahone's brigade, and then if, if he was supposed to be the division reserve, which seems to be the case, then he was never notified that he was, you know, no longer in reserve anymore. Something, something broke down there, and it, it, you really have to blame Anderson for not following up on it. If Mahone had been ordered to stay put, then he thought he was following orders. And if Anderson wanted him to go, then it falls on Anderson to force him to do so. So I think, the, I think the blame really falls on Anderson, and. Thankfully, there were other larger problems at Gettysburg, so Mahone kind of got swept under the rug there in the wake of Stewart and Longstreet and some of the other stuff. But for a time, he was catching some flack, primarily from Wilcox and Wright.
0: So do you think that's where the kind of the antagonism between Wilcox and Mahone started? And did it carry over into 1864 with uh, the
1: Overland Campaign? It's definitely where the the animosity with Wilcox started. How much it carried over into 64, um, I don't know. Um, At Petersburg, there were definitely some friction how much it was. I don't know because both of them really played it up after the war. How much was actually taking place at the time, I don't know. But the, the two of them were definitely at loggerheads after the war about some of the operations at Petersburg, where Mahone was claiming Wilcox didn't do anything, and Wilcox was saying the same thing about Mahone when they were having to cooperate on some of the battlefields there south of town. Which is funny, because they both kind of
0: rejuvenated the Third Corps during the Petersburg actions. They were kind of the, the mobile assault force for Lee's army, so they even if they had some kind of friction between the two, it, it seemed not to get too much in the way, because they both did their jobs on many occasions.
1: Exactly. In yeah, Petersburg. the same could be said for Heath as well. He and Mahone hated one another, but at one point, I think it was uh, during the uh, uh, Globe Tavern maybe, I think, I don't remember exactly where, but at some point, the two of them actually share a farmhouse's headquarters. Which, so they were, even though they hated each other, they could obviously get along. But in Heath's memoirs, he refuses to mention Mahone by name. Every reference he makes to Mahone in his memoirs, he refers to him as the other division commander. He never <laughs> calls him by name.
0: Yeah, there's obviously something (laughs) going on there. So let's talk about another um, controversial aspect of Mahone's military career, the July 30th, 1864, the explosion of the major Union mine underneath um, the Confederate lines outside of Petersburg, and then Mahone's participation in that. Um, Part of the story is black Union soldiers were yelling no quarter towards the Confederates. And we know there's plenty of evidence that suggests that Confederates were obviously shooting either armed or unarmed white and black prisoners in the crater, the massive hole there. Mm-hmm. Um, Mahone's brigade and division were very heavily engaged in that. What what can you tell us about Mahone's role in the crater? And also, was he aware of the shootings going on and? What did he do about it, if he knew of anything about it?
1: When he learned, I don't know exactly when he learned, but he did find out that it was going on, and as soon as he did, he ordered a stop put to it. How much had gone on before then, I don't know, and how much continued after that, I don't know, but there was definitely some stuff going on that that shouldn't have been going on. I think the just the very nature of that engagement, the you know, the literal blowing up of Part of the Confederate lines, and you know the South Carolina troops that were there, you know their body parts everywhere. So this was something that, that hadn't been seen in that theater of the war. So it, it definitely got emotions running hot on both sides. And then, like you say, the the uh, division, the Black troops from Burnside's Corps, that wind up there in the crater, there were a lot of emotions going on there on, on both sides. It's one of those things, I, you can't really trust the post-war accounts on either side of it, and I've not found, there probably are references, I haven't found enough of them yet to really figure out what was going on at the time from accounts that were done, you know, contemporary accounts right around the battle that, that address that. So there was definitely some bad stuff going on, but to what extent? I don't know. It's one of those things I, I hope to research some more.
0: So, in turn, after the war, the immediate aftermath of the war, when you have men like Early and Longstreet are writing their memoirs and, you know, covering their reputations, Mm -hmm. protecting their reputations, and they're all fighting back and forth in the Southern Historical Society papers and this publication, that publication. Where does Mahone? is he relatively quiet and all that, or does he kind of just do his own kind of reputation building or defense— and then, like you mentioned earlier, he became a Republican, so he obviously was getting attacked. So was, it, was he just kind of laying low and continuing on with life, or was he very active in politics? What was, what was his post-war life like?
1: He got back into the railroad business after the war. He, when Lee tells his men to go back and rebuild their lives, rebuild Virginia, Mahone really takes that to heart. He probably does more than anybody else in immediate post-war Virginia to get Virginia back on its economic footing with his railroads. Uh, Eventually, he creates a railroad empire across Virginia, uh, the Atlantic, Mississippi, and Ohio Railroad. It goes from Norfolk all the way to Bristol, uh, and he envisioned it going to the Mississippi River. Uh, Never made it there in his lifetime, but today uh, that railroad is Norfolk Southern, so it encompasses more than half of the uh, United States. In terms of what Mahone is doing regarding the war and writing, he never writes his memoirs. Uh, He doesn't write as much as the others, but he does write. And um, George Bernard, he was uh, in the 12th Virginia. He collected a lot of uh, letters and speeches. There's two volumes of his stuff that's been published. There's some of Mahone's stuff in there. Uh, He was very active in the Mahone's Brigade Association. They stayed close and did a lot of corresponding among themselves. He also has what we would term today probably a political machine. You know, something that uh, Tweed or Daly or even the Birds would have been jealous of in terms of how he controlled Virginia. So he had a lot of operatives, shall we call them, who were doing a lot of his writing for him. He didn't have to do a lot of writing because he had this small army of sycophants who would do it for him. Sure. And that played into his political game. There's a rumor that started after Lee's death that Lee, for some reason, tapped Mahone to succeed him if something ever happened to Lee, which is absolutely ridiculous. But Mahone didn't spread that himself, but he allowed it to be spread on his behalf. And that's really how he operated after the war. The the uh, Depeister episode is a good example, too. He ghost wrote the article, but his name wasn't on it. So he got the good and the bad from that. And that, that that's really how a lot of his post-war writing
0: worked. So he's kind of like a puppet master.
1: That's a good description, yeah
0: as far as writing and yeah. preserving your reputation. Yeah. So what kind of arguments are you making by writing a biography on William Mahone? What's, what's the significance of him that we need to take away that historians have either obviously omitted because he hasn't had a biography written about him since the 1930s, but mm-hmm. what is the importance of Mahone? What are the arguments you're trying to make with this biography?
1: Just bringing to light one of the, the hardest-hitting brigades of A.P. Hill's corps. Um, you name the engagement, Mahone's Brigade is there. They might not have been in the thick of it, such as, you know, Gettysburg, but, but they were there. And to tell the story of Mahone's Brigade is really to tell the story of the Army in Northern Virginia. And when you look at Mahone himself, it, the three facets of his career, railroad, soldier, and politician, uh, the, the footprint that he leaves is just absolutely incredible. Uh, the, the biography that, that was done of him back in the 30s, that really focuses on his political career, and that's the part of him that I know the least about, and in all honesty, interests me the least. <laughs> so I'm focusing more on the other two aspects of him, Mahone the soldier and Mahone the railroader. Because the, the story of the readjusters, which is the political party that he creates, which is not Republican in name, but they espouse Republican uh, policies and they, they vote Republican, that political party really dominates Virginia for about... 20 years after, well, at the end of Reconstruction and shortly thereafter.
0: So when in Reconstruction, was he? what was his feelings towards emancipation and union occupation? You said he was a readjuster, basically in a Republican, so was he supportive of certain things, kind of more on the Southern Democrat side of some things? Was he kind of in the middle? Was he
1: more wishy-washy? He was definitely on the radical end of things. The the backbone really of the readjuster party was the newly enfranchised black voters, the the freed slaves and former free blacks. Most, if not all of them in Virginia, became supporters of the readjuster party. And those who got into office did so on the readjuster ticket. So he was definitely not in line with the old pre-war Southern Democrats. But some will argue that he didn't really take these values to heart. He was doing this just as an opportunist. He He saw an opportunity and he was pandering to the freed slaves to get himself in a position of power, which the way his personality was, it could be the case. But be that as it may, whatever his motives were, he did more than perhaps anyone else in post-war Virginia to advance the cause of African Americans. And one of the last things that he did as a railroader was to take some of the proceeds from the sale of his railroad to fund the creation of... What is now Virginia State University, the, the first state-supported all-black school in the South. Which still exists. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, thanks,
0: Charlie, for spending some time with us today. Is there any other projects you're working on besides the uh Mahone biography?
1: I've got a uh, project coming out, Robert E. Lee, Day by Day, that'll be out sometime in the near future.
0: Okay. What, what brought you, which led you to that since there's such a corpus of Lee material? Is, this just, is it literally like a, a multi-volume thing, like a day-by-day day from his birth to death? or
1: It's going to go day-by-day day from shortly before the war to shortly after Appomattox. It starts uh, a couple of days before he resigns from the U.S. Army and it ends uh, when he gets back to Richmond. After apomatics, and it literally goes day by day throughout that time period. Anything that can be ascribed to a specific day during that time period. So, is it going to be kind of like a
0: like a, a diary almost, or more of a? Is it going to be heavily heavily detailed, or just whatever details that we know about each of these days?
1: It's going to be a reference work, and the the level of detail varies. Um, some days I have absolutely nothing. I couldn't even tell you where he is on some days, and then other days. The, the source material is so detailed, I can tell you what he ate at all three meals and what time he ate them and with who. So it, it really just depends on the, the available source material. Okay,
0: excellent. Well, we look forward to uh, seeing that. when When do you think that will be coming out?
1: Probably early 2020.
0: And yeah, what about the Mahone biography? Is that still in the works?
1: That's still at least a year down the road before I get that manuscript finished. All right,
0: excellent. Well, thanks for joining us today, Charlie.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: Thanks to Charlie Knight for joining us, Campfire Chatter, and speaking with us. And I hope you will all keep an eye out for his upcoming work on Robert E. Lee Day by Day, as well as in the future, probably in the next couple of years, his biography of William Mahone. On the next episode of Campfire Chatter, I recently sat down with historian Paul Quigley, who is the D- James I. Robertson, Jr., professor of history and director of the Virginia Center for Civil War Studies at Virginia Tech. And he was also my thesis advisor as a graduate student down there. And We recently sat down and discussed ideas of Southern nationalism before and during the war. So keep an eye out for that interview as well in the next episode of Campfire Chatter. And also, if you would like to donate to contribute to further Interviews and technological improvements for the podcast. Please go into the anchor dashboard page with the listing of episodes. There's a link on there, a button to click for to assist with that. All any and all help is appreciated, and we will see you next time around the campfire.